everyone this is Jem Jeremy Gilbert for ACFM this is a microdose in theory it's probably going to be more like a macrodose by the time we're finished and it's about folk music uh, this is just going to be me solo for a change and this is really to accompany our main episode on folk which we released a few weeks ago and the producers thought it would be a good idea for me to do a do a whole show talking about the history of folk music and this seemed like an easy idea when it was first suggested and it's turned out to be really hard because it needed a, a lot of thinking about and because to do it properly I'd need about 100 hours. But I'm going to have a go anyway. I've made a load of notes. Here we go. First some disclaimers. I'm not really going to be talking much about blues or about country. Um, I'm going to miss out loads of stuff that people will think is important. Uh, please don't at me on Twitter. Uh, I know the stuff is missing and even if I don't know uh, I've done as much work on this as I've got time for, and uh, there was bound to be stuff left out. Um, <clears throat> I will mention in the course of the show a few things I really feel like I don't know enough about and would like to know more about. But apart from that, I'm, I'm sorry that this won't be as complete as some people would definitely like. Okay, folk music. Well, as I'll explain in a bit, I think the concept of folk music as we think of it today is really gets consolidated around the 1940s uh, for reasons I'll explain. Obviously, there is traditional music. There is the concept of the folk and folk culture sort of developing over the course of the 19th century. Uh, there's traditional music, you know, which is much older than that. Obviously, I'm really only going to be talking about Britain and the United States in this show. Uh, again, for lack of any time to talk about anything else. And if you're talking about both British or American, actually, folk music, then one thing you can't get away from is the, the importance of Irish music. Now, there's lots of debates about where Irish music came from, whether it's influenced by music from other parts of the world, to what extent it really was this sort of indigenous tradition which survived in ways musical traditions didn't survive much on mainland Britain and certainly in England, but the standard story, which I don't really have time um, to interrogate here, is that indeed this is what happened, that, that I, there was an Irish musical tradition, which is a sort of indigenous musical tradition, which avoids being sort of disrupted or captured or distorted by the processes of industrialization, by the growth of a particular set of musical norms with the development of what we think of as classical orchestral music in Western Europe but, and also commercial forms that kind of evolve in tandem with it over the 18th and 19th centuries. Irish music is seems to have maintained this sort of in, relative independence from all that, much like other musics from the European periphery did, say Spanish and Portuguese musics, other Southern European musics, for example. And a lot of these musics have some fairly similar qualities. Uh, they tend to be very rhythmic. Um, they tend to, there tends to be a lot of music which is either played with quite simple instruments in a kind of not exactly improvised way, but um, in a sort of, you know, according to kind of improv, you know, extemporizing on well-known cyclical patterns rather than using written scores. And also a lot of kind of very plaintive, kind of often unaccompanied uh, vocal ballads. 
And these are all features you find in Irish music um, going back several hundred years, you know, insofar as it's documented and as far as we know, going back much further. And the survival of this kind of music making in Ireland, I think, has a big impact on the way in which people think about how folk music ought to sound once folk music, uh, you know, old ballads and songs and dances start to be collected and published in, in Britain first in the second half of the 19th century and then with the advent of audio recording. People like Cecil Sharp start actually collecting field recordings around the beginning of the 20th century. And I think one, one of the impacts of, of Irish music is it sort of provides a template. People think, well, this is what old music sounds like. So presumably this is how these sort of songs that we're collecting and writing down, but we don't really know how they sounded, how they ought to sound. So it really influences how what people think folk music ought to sound like generally um, by the sort of early 20th century. The, an idea of folk music as, as this sort of organic production of the community is really important to people who are involved in sort of collecting folk songs and documenting supposedly traditional musics, as I say, from the mid from the mid 19th really through to the early 20th century. And um, by the early 20th century, it starts to become possible to start recording uh, musics that people are making that seems to have been you know, handed down orally through many generations in, in many cases. And I mentioned Cecil Sharp. You know, he's a really, a, I mean, he's really a sort of Victorian figure, although he, he lived into the 1920s. In the 20th century, I mean, the towering figure in the kind of field recording and collection and dissemination and popularization, uh, both of old blues and of kind of American folk music, as it would come to be understood, was um, Alan Lomax, you know, hugely important figure in the collection, documentation, and popularization of what would come to be called folk music. Lomax uh, is born in 1915, lived right through to 2002. He's sort of active from the 30s onwards, and. What Lomax is probably best known for uh, collecting and documenting, I suppose he's equally well known for collecting and documenting kind of old classic blues, but it, um, he's, he's, he's also very well known for having collected and documented uh, the music of the, of the Appalachian people, um, people living in the Appalachian Mountains, in the you know, very remote parts of the United States, people who seem to have, be, have kind of musical traditions and dance traditions which seem to be traceable right back to Irish and Scottish traditions um, which their ancestors would have brought with them uh, from the old world. A lot of this music is quite distinctive in character. Um, if you will, I think we can hear, it'd be interesting to hear some examples, kind of older and more recent examples of what's you know, still referred to as Appalachian music or bluegrass or mountain music, or what used to just be called old-timey music sometimes. And so one of the oldest, one of the first kind of recordings of that, which I know of, was is Emery Arthur's, Emery Arthur's uh, recording of Man of Constant Sorrow, which dates back to the 1920s. And you know, it is still a very powerful kind of recording. So we could hear a bit of that. Man 
and that kind of music that really carries on you know being you know quite popular and increasingly widely disseminated through recordings in the states over the course of the 30s 40s 50s a good example would be from the 1950s maybe would be the stanley brothers east virginia blues i was born in east virginia north carolina right it go And then another great example would be Jean Ritchie uh, singing and accompanying herself on the dulcimer, uh, one of the traditional instruments of the of Appalachian music, um, and singing a song called Hangman. This is a recording from 1961, and this is really sort of extraordinary uh, to me. Hangman, hangman, slack up your rope, oh, slack it for a while. I look down yonder and I seen Paul coming, he's walked for a many long miles. Oh, Paul, say, Paul, have you brung me any gold, any gold to pay my fee? Or have you walked these many long miles, see me on the hanging tree? So that song from 1961, a recording from 1961 is of a song which supposedly uh, was was handed down you know, generation after generation uh, in those mountain communities and, and can be traced back to the British Isles like several hundred years ago. I mean, I don't know how true that is, but... Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't claim any expertise on the historical authenticity of, of any of this stuff. If you're interested in that music um, and the way in which people were thinking about it at the time when it, uh, at, the, at the time when that was recorded, so the early '60s, then there's a really invaluable uh, documentary which you can just see all of on YouTube now. It was made in 1965 by the American filmmaker David Hoffman. It's called Bluegrass Roots. Roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Uh, and uh, it's, that's really something else. Um, lots of musical highlights in there. I think my favourite um, is probably Frida Lunsford singing, again, singing her version of East Virginia Blues and accompanying herself on the guitar. And what you hear there, what you hear in the recordings of people like the Stanley Brothers, is as well as this very affecting kind of vocal music, some, you also hear some really extraordinary virtuosity uh, on the banjo, on the fiddle, on the dulcimer, really sort of extraordinary, like almost sort of jazz levels of virtuosity. And some uh, historians and ethnomusicologists will claim that that's because these musicians were actually very heavily influenced by African-American musicians. Um, others will say, well, no, they don't know. They didn't have to be influenced by them because they had their own traditions going back hundreds of years. And some people have even argued that those like Irish traditions were themselves influenced by people from Africa and other people have said well again they wouldn't really have to be because people have made rhythmic and kind of semi-improvisational music all around the world forever in fact that's what human music usually sounds like so and I don't know I don't know the answer to those questions uh, what I do know is it does have a kind of extraordinary sort of sonic power some of this stuff so it's this kind of music, it's this um, bluegrass, which really is one of the key uh, sources which goes into the idea of sort of capital F folk music once it starts to really become consolidated towards the end of the 30s. But there are other key sources which feed into that from the early 20th century. Now, the mountain music has a real appeal for people, partly because it seems to be, you know, the unvarnished, uh, you know, expression of the experience and lives of 
you know, of people of, of a, of a, from certain kinds of working class communities, um, far away from the great urban and coastal centres in the United States. But there's another key source for folk music, which is much more explicitly political, much more derived from the industrial heartlands and the uh, and also the sort of industrial peripheries, really, and from the the political struggles which were going on there in the early 20th century. And this is the political music, the kind of protest and more than protest, kind of revolutionary music, which was disseminated by the Wobblies, the members of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, the great syndicalist organisation which was so important to radical labour agitation and organisation in the United States in the early 20th century. The great hero, the iconic hero of the IWW, or one of them anyway, is the legendary organiser Joe Hill, not just an organiser but a, a writer and a, famously a songwriter. Joe Hill you know, contributed plenty of uh, radical songs to the IWW's Little Red Songbooks, which they would publish. And, you know, Joe Hill was kind of tragically shot by a firing squad in Utah, you know, you know as punishment for his agitating activities in, in, in 1915. And I think it was only a few weeks before that. I think it was in the, you know, he was in prison, you know, waiting trial or execution. I think when he wrote... This song, this was a song dedicated to his friend and comrade Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a, a radical agitator and, among other things, was a founding member of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, the song is called Rebel Girl. It was published in the IWW Little Red Songbook in 1916. There's been various different recordings of it. Um... You look on YouTube for people singing Rebel Girl, you'll find some very kind of remarkable and moving music. I think maybe the best known recording is this one that was recorded in a bluegrass idiom uh, by Hazel Dickens in 1990. Joe Hill will be known to many people best from the song I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill Last Night. That's based on a poem that was written in 1930 by Alfred Hayes called I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill Last Night. And then in 36, it was set to music. Uh, set to music by Earl Robinson. I think just for some, it was for some, you know, New York communist youth camp. And it was very quickly popularised, especially um, because it was uh, frequently sung by Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, the great African-American uh, singer, you know, a huge world star at that time, and also, you know, a committed communist. And, I mean, maybe we should probably hear a bit of Robeson singing. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he
what are some of the other sources going into sort of folk music once it starts to become a recognisable form or set of forms in the 40s? Well, one other key source is the kind of classic tradition of work songs, especially railroad songs, uh, going back to the 19th century, you know, songs that were kind of inspired by or were actually examples of the singing of work gangs. Uh, the most famous of those uh, in America is obviously the song John Henry. Uh, and I'm sure we can get a recording of John Henry, uh, possibly Bart Simpson's legendary rendition thereof. Da, 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 da. Wow! They took Bart Simpson to the graveyard and they buried him in the sand. Oh, yeah. And every locomotive that comes roaring by said, There lies a steel man. Okay, so all of these different elements uh, the old time uh, bluegrass. The, the radical songs of the IWW, uh, the work songs, um, the traditional Irish music, um, these all feed to some extent, as, you know, in its own right, these all feed into the emergence and, and sort of consolidation of, of folk music as a recognisable idiom in the 40s, really, at the end of the 30s and into the 40s. And it's important to understand that to a large extent, this is a very this is a deliberate project. It's a deliberate project on the on the part of key actors like Lomax and like various artists uh, who I'll mention, who are all to varying degrees um, committed, you know, either members or supporters or, or sympathisers with you know, fellow travellers of the Communist Party and the Communist Movement. And it's the Communist Movement itself really embraces and celebrates the idea of folk music especially during this period as part of a part of the popular front strategy to build very broad-based social and popular coalitions against fascism i mean now this is not entirely it's not it's not entirely for good reasons it's partly because the communist you know the international communist movement under stalin uh, is rejecting and turning away from the kinds of radical modernism and avant-gardism that were more associated with communism in the 20s and it, you know that's partly because Stalinism is becoming increasingly anti-intellectual and authoritarian and small-c conservative in its advocacy for socialist realism in, in the arts and submission to the authority of the party and its leadership uh, within the movement. But it's not. there's not to say that nothing good came out of all this. And one of the most interesting things that comes out of that moment of communist politics is the, uh, is the active support for it and you know, engagement with folk music as an idea. So when folk music really starts to get going as a, and come together as an idea, you know, in the late 30s and 40s, what are some of the key um, elements of it and who are some of the key people practising it? Well, the, mo the first person to mention, the most obvious, uh, the, the historically in many ways the most influential, is Woody Guthrie. I'm sure most people listening to this will have heard of Woody Guthrie before. Guthrie comes from Oklahoma, he's a singer, he plays guitar and writes and sings songs. And to some extent, the sort of modern idea of the capital S, capital S singer-songwriter is essentially based on the persona of Woody Guthrie. There may be people before that, especially blues singers, who you could say preceded him, but the kind of image of the, the travelling troubadour with just his guitar, singing simple songs about contemporary life, you know, love and politics. It's Guthrie who sort of popularises that, uh, that image, at least with certain audiences. So, I mean, where do we start with playing music by Woody Guthrie? 
I imagine most people will know his song, This Land Is Your Land. You know, in, in the States, that is still really understood to be the progressive national anthem. I, I mean, I was a, I did fourth and fifth grade at elementary school in, in the States, you know, many years ago. And we, we sang This Land Is Your Land in school. And that there was a really strong sense that, you know, there was this suite of patriotic songs, which included the national anthem and you know, America the Beautiful and My Country Tis of Thee and This Land Is Your Land. And like This Land Is Your Land is the one that it was like the concession being made to the kind of radical progressive tradition in the States. That if you if you didn't feel comfortable singing all those uh, songs about war or, you know, the majesty of the mountains, you could at least sing This Land Is Your Land. Uh, it's been covered by many, many people. Uh, the greatest recording of it is, of course, uh, that by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Uh, which we might have played on the show before, I'm not sure. Songs we I think we should play clips of uh, definitely. Um, I think we'll, I think I'll pick. I'm going to pick three. I hope we've got room for them. So uh, three of my favourites: Do Re Mi. This is a song about about leaving the Dust Bowl, the, you know, leaving the, the the parts of the country like the Midwest and parts of the South and Southwest that have been devastated by drought and by the economic effects of the Great Depression, going looking for work, looking for a future in the urban or coastal regions and, and above all in the highly prosperous emerging state of California and being told, look, go home, you know, we don't want you here uh, by the kind of, by the authorities. Uh, if you don't have the do re mi, uh, then California isn't such a garden of Eden, the song says. Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the do re mi. Okay, another song, really great song to know, is uh, very simple. Is this great um, anti-fascist anthem? All you fascists bound to lose. I love this. Well, I'm gonna tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. And of course, all you fascists bound to lose, that's really, you know, that was to be sung on the radio. Woody Allen, I mean, <laughs> Woody Guthrie was getting a lot of um, public exposure on public radio in the 40s because he was really, you know, he was part of the broad effort by the progressive movement to support the New Deal project and also to counter uh, right-wing propaganda, to counter the rise of uh, authoritarian fascism, as well as to counter general bourgeois and capitalist propaganda at the time, and also part of the propaganda effort to whip up support for a war effort um, in Europe against the fascist powers. So all you fascists bound to lose, you know, was a good example of Woody Guthrie's music really being in line with the political agenda of the New Deal administration, which is one reason he got so much public exposure during this period. And finally, just because it's one of my favourites, it'd be great to hear a bit of Columbus Stockade. You can go and leave me if you want to Never let me cross your mind in your heart You love another, leave me darling, I don't mind 
Okay, that's Woody Guthrie. Who else to talk about from this period? Well, uh, one of the few um, black singers who gets categorised at this time as a folk singer rather than a pure blues singer, although he is also a really important blues singer, is Huddy William Ledbetter, otherwise known as Leadbelly. Probably most famous uh, for the song Goodnight Irene, but another really famous one which I love for obvious reasons is the Bourgeois Blues. Uh, this is uh, Leadbelly singing about uh, finding himself stuck and alienated in a bourgeois town. Me and my sweet wife and Miss Monica run all over that town. Everywhere they go to see they would join us down, Lord, in a bourgeois town. Ooh, it's a bourgeois town. I got a bourgeois blues on Okay, so we've all been there. Another key figure, really fascinating figure from a contemporary historical perspective is Merle Travis, a singer from Kentucky. He's very well known for his song, Dark as a Dungeon, a song about the subjective experience of a minor. But I think in some ways his most, his most radical song was the, his 1947 hit, 16 Tons. You dig 16 tons and what do you get? Another year older and deeper in debt. Uh, fantastic um, and it's worth reflecting I mean this is 1947 by 52 53 you try releasing records with such an explicitly anti-capitalist message you're going to get in big trouble you load 16 tons and what do you get you get another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store But of all these figures who emerged to prominence in the 40s, probably the most important in terms of kind of organising and articulating the, an idea of folk music is Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger, who lived a really long life, he only died a few years ago, um, a hugely influential figure, you know, an, an organiser of festivals, a collector of songs, an artist, a performer, a card-carrying communist. Seeger's band The Weavers, really helped to popularise uh, folk as a sort of popular commercial idiom in the 40s and then were blacklisted for their communist allegiances and their battle with the blacklist is told in a great book by a friend of the show, Jesse Jarno, uh, in a book called Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist and the Battle for the Soul of America. Great book. And one of the most famous uh, recordings by the Weavers, one, a song they helped to make really famous, was a, it was a performance of a Lead Belly song, which is sort of based on, in the style of an old railroad song, and it is called The Rock Island Line. So we could hear a bit of that. And the Rock Island Line was covered famously in Britain by Lonnie Donegan, and it became maybe the biggest hit, I think this is around 56, the biggest hit of the Skiffle movement. And Skiffle was a sort of, I guess it was sort of folk music, it was sort of folk, sort of proto-rock and roll, a sort of variation of bluegrass or that became popular 
I mean, it had presence in the States, but it, I know it best as a kind of musical craze in Britain in the mid-50s. It involved, you know, groups of young people forming bands with sort of homemade instruments. I mean, notoriously the famous t- double basses made from tea chests and washboards used as percussion instruments and blowing on jugs. I mean, it was kind of jug band. The idea of the jug band was related to the idea of the skiffle band. And the most famous hit of the skiffle movement was Lonnie Donegan's version of the Rock Island Line. Oh, well, the Rock Island Line, she's the man you could roll. The Rock Island Line is the road to ride it. The Rock Island Line, she's the man you could roll. And if you want to ride, you got to ride it like a fine. You get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. But maybe of more lasting importance than the skiffle movement, although the skiffle movement was important because the Beatles kind of first started out trying to play skiffle before they got more into rock and roll. I mean, before they were the Beatles. Um, But probably more important was, in terms of the history of folk music around the same time, was the activities of Ewan McColl. Ewan McColl is really the British Pete Seeger. Uh, In fact, he ended up marrying Pete Seeger's sister Peggy. And Ewan McColl comes from Manchester. You know, he's an actor, a a writer, a, a folk music collector, a singer... And he's really active both as a collector and as a performer. And he he really is the key figure of the so-called folk revival of the um, early 50s in Britain uh, yeah, and through into the early 60s, really. This phrase, the folk revival, is often used, although if you think about some of the history we've talked about already, it's not clear exactly what was being revived. It's not clear there is a sort of, you know, there there's a history of topical songs and topical ballads. There's a history of traditional musics of various kinds it's not clear that any of them that they constituted a sort of coherent thing you could refer to as folk that could then be revived but part of the sort of discourse of folk was this projecting back onto the past a degree of consistency and coherence although i mean that's a criticism that's often made of folk and i think in itself it's a bit of a naive criticism actually it's not like you and mccall didn't know that there weren't actually sort of you know, the equivalent of folk clubs in the 19th century at which people would play, you know, Irish traditional music and topical ballads and what have you. I mean, he he knew that perfectly well. Pete Seeger knew that perfectly well. They knew they were sort of creating something as well as recovering certain things. Anyway, Ewan McColl, uh, I think probably the first really famous song that he popularised is Scarborough Fair. So there's a recording of him singing Scarborough Fair was released in 1947, I think. Uh, Scarborough Fair will be best known to most people um, in the version recorded decades later by Simon and Garfunkel. Very sort of commercial, very heavily produced, arguably quite saccharine kind of sound. Uh, this, uh, this uh, the Ewan McColl recording is very different. And McColl actually... He collected this song directly from a, a retired miner in County Durham who sang him the song and that he had had, had, had that song passed down to, to him by older people and nobody really knows how old it is. You know, it might go back a very long way. So it'd be good to hear a bit of that, you and McColl's Scarborough Fair. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one that lives there. For once she was a true love of mine. And then the Ewan McCollin 1950 launches Topic Records to, to release 
yeah, British folk music. He popularises a whole bunch of songs, uh, several of which we talked about on the main episode of ACFM about folk, to which this uh, episode is a sort of supplement. Um, thinking, trying to think of a song we didn't talk about on that episode. Uh, one of the songs he popularised that I'm really fond of is The Leaving of Liverpool. And Leaving of Liverpool, obviously really popular um, for the past few decades in the Liverpool area, but that's not where it comes from. It's It was collected from American sailors uh, a few decades before it was uh, popularised by McCollum and loads of other singers. Fare you well, the princess, London stage, river mercy, fare you well. I'm off to California, a place I know right well. And McCall was involved with things like the documentary movement, uh, the um, the movement in cinema, in, in filmmaking and broadcasting to re- to try to document the lives of ordinary people, which you know, was obviously allied to the the project of, in some ways, to the project of socialist realism, and to a general democratic idea about what culture and what contemporary media should be about and should be used for. One of his most famous songs coming out of that experience is a song called The Shoals of Herring. And The Shoals of Herring, it sounds like it could be a really old sailor's song, a fisherman's song. It's not. It's a song that he wrote after sort of interviewing intensively a, a retired fisherman about his life. Um, it's a very moving piece of music. It would be good to hear a bit of that as well, The Shoals of Herring. Oh, it was a fine and a pleasant day Out of Yarmouth Harbour I was faring As a cabin boy on a sailing lugger For to go and hunt the shoals of Heron So... By sort of 1960, it's pretty clear that when you're talking about folk music, you're talking about music which doesn't include many black performers, if any. It's sort of a white music. And from a contemporary vantage point, you know, looking back from 2021, it can seem quite odd, quite strange that this is the case. And yeah, one can wonder what's going on here. But I think it's important to understand that all of the people I've mentioned, all of these guys that I've mentioned so far, these key um contributors to folk music were at certain times in their lives and often for periods of decades they were all either directly involved with anti-racist politics or they were at least members of organizations and supporters of organizations directly involved in anti-racist politics and of course in the U.S. by the by the turn of the 60s folk music and the folk music scene was becoming directly associated with the civil rights movement uh, in the UK, the equivalent would have been the association with the anti-nuclear movement, the nuclear movement for nuclear disarmament. And in the early 60s, you get the development of this famous sort of coffeehouse scene and, and the really really coming into public promise, prominence of this scene that's been developing in Greenwich Village in particular over the past decade, whereby singers um, often singing explicitly political songs, um, uh, often singing traditional songs, often singing a mixture of the two. Uh, you know, they play to audiences in these cafes where otherwise people might be listening 
mostly to jazz. And this scene is really heavily associated with the emerging new left, the emerging student movement, and the, and the participation of, sort of members of the white middle class in the, anti, in the civil rights movement. And I think it is important to stress that there was you know, genuine participation. So the people who become the sort of stars of that Greenwich Village coffeehouse scene, people like Joan Baez, people like Phil Oakes, uh, OCHS, Phil Oakes, and most famously Bob Dylan. I mean, most of them did actually go and spend time you know, on freedom rides, on demonstrations down in the southern states. You know, so my mum, who was you know, in her early, early to mid-teens at the time, living in Atlanta, Georgia, and, you know, her family were all involved in the civil rights movement. You know, she met Phil Oakes on one of these occasions, for example. Key figures from that um, moment, um, as I've already mentioned, would be Joan Baez. We've, so, we've heard so many uh, men so far on this show um, that I think it would be good to hear something by Joan Baez. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, I walked out in Laredo one day, I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen, wrapped in white linen and cold as the and uh, Bob Dylan is the most f- famous person to come out of that scene, although Dylan gets tired of being a protest singer, a folk singer. You know, he becomes fascinated by the mass popularity of the Beatles and the formal musical possibilities of rock and evolves into quite a different kind of artist. Probably the most sort of radical politically and militant of these figures is the aforementioned Phil Oakes. He's most famous for his song, I Ain't Marching Anymore. We should probably hear a bit of that. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans At the end of the early British wars The young land started growing The young blood started flowing But I ain't marching anymore There's a kind of, um, there's a growing kind of relationship here between folk music and what was sometimes just called protest music. And there is a, and there is a sort of, I think, pro, I think it's interesting to think about the concept of protest here. That protest music, as it emerges as an idiom, especially around this moment, I think it's a bit different from, say, the songs of people like Woody Guthrie and his contemporaries. You know, those guys are, are really communists. Those guys are basically calling upon their fellow workers to engage in struggle against their class enemies. The thing about the idiom of folk music, in particular, to be honest, like, you know, the lyrics of people like Dylan, is that it's not really in that vein. Although Dylan was seen as completely modelling himself on Woody Guthrie, you know, Dylan's songs are basically appeals to an imagined moral community of liberal America, you know, and an appeal to them to, you know, to, uh, uh, to be horrified, to be sufficiently horrified by the injustices to which songs like, like Masters of War or The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll or various other protest songs he produces, you know, want to draw attention to. And I think it's worth thinking about that. It's worth holding on to that notion for a minute. Because I think, as I'll, as I'll say later, to some extent, the idea of folk music as radical music sort of dies at the moment when the concept of protest really stops making any sense, especially to young people, because they no longer believe that 
you know, they do inhabit the same moral universe as, you know, members of the political class, for example. And I'd say it's probably around sort of 1990 that that, that shift finally occurs. occurs. So that's what's going on in that's what's going on in the states. Uh, what's going on back in Britain in the first half of the sixties? Well, really, what's happening with people like Dylan, Oakes, Baez is they're sort of extending to some extent the, the possibilities of the singer songwriter model developed by Woody Guthrie. What's going on with folk music in Britain is in some ways sort of sonically more radical, kind of more dramatic. So probably the most significant development in the first, from the first half of the sixties would be the release of the first album by the Watersons. Uh, this is an album called Fire and Ice, released in 1965. It was awarded Melody Maker, the leading music paper of the time. Um, they awarded it its album of the year uh, for what is mostly an album, it's mostly unaccompanied um, vocal singing. And the Watersons are a group from Hull in Yorkshire. Uh, I, th- I think they are literally mostly related to each other. Um, and they do this incredible sort of close harmony singing or un- unaccompanied solo singing in some cases, which at least the claim that seems to be being made um, by them and, and their music is that this is a style of music which is ancient. This is a style of music which has been handed down over generations, which goes back into the mists of time, which might be very similar to the kinds of music you would have heard sort of you know hundreds of years ago. Uh, those claims have been disputed. Um, I don't really know enough about even the debates around them to comment on them. I mean, what I know is certainly that's the kind of effect it has on a modern listener. The effect that it had on listeners at the time when this music was released was, well, here is music that sounds like it comes from a time, a place, a world outside the domain of capitalism, outside the domain of commodity circulation. This is music people just make for each other, you know, not for money, not not for profit, in a way that that has been done, you know, since for hundreds of years, you know, before the capitalist mode of production ever even really, you know, became, you know, came into existence. Um, so there's a couple of tracks worth hearing from this album. I mean, the whole thing's worth hearing, really. One track would be uh, a really characteristic and famous track from this album is their rendition of The Holly Bears Berry, a kind of medieval Christmas song. The Holly and the Ivy When they are both full grown Of all the trees that are in the wood Why the Holly tree bears a crown and then one of the most powerful tracks on, on this album is it's Mike Waterson singing solo, I think. It's a song called John Barleycorn. And John Barleycorn, it's a song that evokes the idea of the, the barley, like the most important grain in many parts of Britain, as a kind of animist spirit. You know, it's a song that evokes the idea that folk traditions carry with them the traces, the, the collective memory of pre-Christian, you know, pagan ideas about fertility and death and rebirth and ritual. Really kind of powerful and haunting piece of music. There were three men come out of the west their fortunes for to try. And these three men made a solemn vow John Barleycorn should die. So I'm, and the next track I'm going I'm to play is something from the year after that from the States. And this is a track by The Birds. The Birds are in the mid-60s are developing this very characteristic folk rock sound. 
They're synthesizing the kind of music they're hearing in the folk clubs, music they're hearing by people like Dylan with a kind of rock sound in order to, to create a very distinctive kind of music. And this is one of the most characteristic examples. This is from their album, Fifth Dimension. This is their recording of The Wild Mountain Time, which, is, which, is, which was already established as a folk club classic by the time they recorded it. So the Wild Mountain Times, a song, it was first recorded, I think, by an Irish singer, an Irish singer in the 50s. It seems to be a song that has a history of having been arranged and rearranged from particular elements over the previous century. Um, it's derived from some poetry that was written at the end of the 18th century or the beginning of the 19th century. So it's not like an ancient ballad lost in the mist of time. But it does count, I think, as a piece of traditional music. And as I say, it was established as a folk club favourite by the time the Burge recorded it. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's incredibly popular. It's a kind of folk anthem in, the, in Scotland, the Wild Mountain Time. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful song. I used to sing it to my, my daughters when they were little as a lullaby. So back in Britain, just a, a year later, you get the release of the first album by the Incredible String Band, a Scottish band producing a, a unique sort of psychedelic folk music. And really, this is the moment, I think, when folk music starts to move away from its kind of rootedness in some idea of proletarian struggle or even pre-proletarian peasant struggle. And instead, it starts to explore its kind of psychedelic connotations. You know, I mean, literally, you know, people are starting to get really into psychedelics. People are going out into the countryside pastoral imagery is taking on a whole new meaning for people you know whereas the pastoral is associated with the past with purity and simplicity you know once the countryside becomes the place where kind of art students go to trip it takes on a whole different set of connotations there it becomes a place of weirdness a place of magic a place of a place that's sort of re-enchanted by the psychedelic experience and the incredible string band are one of the bands that really sort of give voice to that. They use all these musical elements. They use Scottish reels and jigs. They use elements from other part, other musics around the world. They have this very kind of psychedelic vibe. On their later albums, especially their most famous album, 1968's The Hangman's Most Beautiful Daughter, they get really heavily psychedelic. I think we should hear an album, a track from that first album, The Incredible String Band from 67, a track called The Tree. Then one day, when the world had put me in its tomb And my life was just an empty room I went to my tree and I sat there in my gloom And the light was fading dimly and the sky was crying Something else to listen to from 67, from America will be a bit of music from the, the influential picking guitarist John Farhey. And John Farhey is a really fascinating figure, records dozens of albums, influences lots of people. Is he, is he doing folk music? 
He's doing a kind of modern instrumental guitar music. He draws heavily on Indian raga. He draws on jazz. But he's extending and elaborating a, a finger-picking steel string guitar style, which does come directly out of things like Appalachian music. And he's often, you know, he's often kind of considered a sort of folk musician. But it's also, there's something very psychedelic about those influences and about the way he extends and elaborates the form. So a good example will be this 1967 track called Night Train of Valhalla. And another uh, long-term, kind of over the long-term, sort of influential exponent of psychedelic folk, who I kind of put alongside the Incredible String Band and Farhey, would be Vashti Bunyan. Her 1970 album, Just Another Diamond Day, uh, is one of those records that you know, not that many people listened to when it was first released, but it came to be considered very influential on later generations of songwriters and kind of weird folk exponents. The title track from that album um, has a very kind of ethereal quality and it has this in, in deliberately self-infantilizing childlike quality, which a lot of the British psychedelia does at this time. You, know, you think of people like Sid Barrett. Um, and this is a really good example of that. Okay, but also in the late 60s, um, or in 1969, in, in 1970, uh, two, there's two bands uh, released, they're probably the most kind of influential albums, who are really defining a sort of British folk rock sound. Perhaps most famously, Fairport Convention. Uh, there's two albums, both from 1969, on which Fairport Con Convention really define a kind of British folk rock. They're doing a similar thing to the birds, but they're using multiple British forms. They're using more traditional music, some really old ballads uh, to inform the music they're producing. And of course, Fairport Convention are graced with the vocal genius of Sandy Denny, one of the great British vocalists. I mean, for me, she's, she's almost like the British Aretha Franklin. She has a really tremendously affecting and powerful voice, a really tragic figure. You know, she, she didn't survive the, the 70s. It'll be good to hear um, the Sandy Denny song from Fairport Convention's album Unhalf Bricking called Who Knows Where the Time Goes. A really haunting piece of music, which has a really happy lyric, but like almost everything Denny sings, it has this very sad and melancholy air about it. And then it would be good to hear a couple of tracks from Fairport Convention's most famous album, the one that came after this in the same year, Liege and Leaf. So 
the one track is it would be Tamlin. Tamlin is a Scottish medieval ballad about sex and murder, which they use by kind of electrifying the fiddle and adding a kind of rock beat. They turn into this really kind of energetic track, which has this you know, long instrumental stretch at the end, instrumental stretch at the end, which is really, you know, kind of danceable. It's really um, powerful piece of music, Tamlin. And then in some ways, the standout track from that album is this short, very sweet, very sad, but it's an incredibly emotional piece of music called Farewell, Farewell. there we go Sandy Denny just this incredible sort of liquid voice and the other band alongside Fairport Convention defining what some uh, aficionados say is not a folk rock sound but an electric folk sound Steel Ice Band so I think we should hear a couple of tracks from Steel Ice Band's first album Hark the Village Wait and uh, the first would be a song which really shows off the talents of of their vocalist, the great Maddie Pryor, and it's a song called All Things Are Quite Silent. And Steel Ice Band really, you know, they use a lot of the old, uh, the ballads collected by James Child in the, in the late 19th century. A lot of these really old ballads that I, I do have this very sort of haunting, sort of otherworldly quality, especially when they're sort of partially electrified in the way that the band do. But then this other track I want to hear from that, that Steel Ice Band album from 1970 is one which is far less ethereal and one which <laughs> makes their political commitments very clear indeed. This is The Black Leg Miner. How terrible is a terrible place I rub wet clay in the black leg space And around the heaps I run a foot to race To catch the black leg miner I'm dipping gang near the cycle mine Across the way they stretch a line To catch the throat and break the spine Of the dirty black leg miner The Black Leg Miner there, a song about hating scabs Absolutely fantastic stuff then also uh, from the early 70s, from 1972, uh, probably the other great uh, British folk rock album. Uh, Lan and Mike Waterson from the Watersons released this very unique, very intriguing record called Bright Phoebus. And the title track from that uh, is a really kind of interesting piece of music. It's using this sort of Nashville sounding uh, slide guitar um, and this kind of folk and rock elements in a Really sort of unique way. It's a lovely bit of music. Bright Phoebus. For the very first time she smiled on me. 
So what happens in the sort of first half of the 70s with folk music? Well, I mean, one of the key developments will be the emergence of the, the singer-songwriter as a kind of distinct type of mus musical performer who isn't really connected that much anymore to any sort of folk music scene or tradition. You could think about people like Van Morrison, Nick Drake, Jackson Brown in the States, Richard and Linda Thompson, after, the, after Richard Thompson's left Fairport Convention, um, are doing kind of very potent, kind of British, kind of singer-songwriter music. They have a hit with this track called Bright Light in, in 74, which is always worth hearing. But the most important of all these figures would be Joni Mitchell. I'm not even sure if we should play Joni Mitchell, because I'm not sure she ever was really a folk singer, but the extent to which the the singer-songwriter as a concept sort of emerges from the folk scene means I think it is legitimate to listen to her, even though by even by sort of 71, certainly in later record on, on later recordings, she's more a jazz singer than a, a folk singer in any meaningful sense. But I think kind of audiences really came to her with the idea that she was somehow operating in a, in a folky idiom. But you can see how far she's sort of going on beyond that, even on this 1971 track. This would be River, a track from her seminal album, Blue. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to Just incredibly potent stuff there. And certainly by the mid-70s, by an album like The Hissing of Summer Lawns, you know, a fantastic record. I mean, all the records she makes in that period and probably all periods are fantastic. But by the 75, she's, she's clearly really a jazz singer. But I, I always I always want to take the opportunity to talk about Joni Mitchell because I think, you know, she's a figure... I mean, everybody knows her and everybody knows she's sort of important. But I think if you think about her importance, you think about how important, especially for female musicians and performers, the idea of singer-songwriting has been and still is to this day. And you think about how significant she is in really defining that as a distinctive genre... And also the fact that no one has, has really come close to doing it as well as her. She's, she's a titanic figure in, in modern music. You know, she is up there with the Lennon and the McCartneys, the James Browns. You know, but she doesn't get talked about in that way nearly as often as she deserves. Why? Well, we all know why. Because she's a woman. <clears throat> so other stuff that's going on in the 70s, well... One thing I've been thinking about, and, and one thing I haven't really been able to get a real handle on historically, is this question. And this is something I would like anybody to, to give any information about they can. And that is, at what point did, say, the, uh, re the sort of Irish rebel songs really start becoming part of the folk club repertoire? I don't really know the answer to that. What I know is that Irish music's been really important throughout this period for folk music and folk club music. And I know that the Irish rebel songs, songs which mostly have their origins in the struggle for independence from Britain and the civil war that followed in the wake of that in the 1920s, you know, they were sung by people, certainly people in Ireland and Irish people elsewhere over the course of the 20th century. I haven't seen much evidence that kind of that those rebel songs were were say part of the repertoire of people like 
Ewan McCall or people in the folk clubs in the 50s or the early 60s, I might just not have seen the evidence. They might have been completely part of that repertoire for all that I know. I also know that there's a growing revival of interest in traditional music, in dance music, in folk music, and in any new music using folk and traditional idioms in Ireland and in Scotland during this time, you know, during the, you know, from the 50s through to the 60s and 70s. There's a growing kind of folk club circuit in Scotland. You know, Billy Connolly starts off life as a folk as a folk club singer, and the um. But certainly, there seems to be a kind of a sense. Certainly, I have a sense that uh, the Irish rebel songs become more and more important uh, as part of that repertoire. And there's some. There seems to be a sort of interchange between the kind of music you might hear in an Irish pub and the kind of music you might hear in a folk club in places like Britain over this time. And so, by the early seventies, is is a moment when people are really hearing some of some of these. Um, you know, by that point, fairly traditional kind of Irish rebel songs. And obviously this is connected to the start of the Troubles, to the growing kind of tension between our Irish Republicans and the British state and also their, their political opponents in Ireland, etc. And so one mark of that is the fact that the Wolf Tones, a band named after Wolf Tone, a hero of the Irish national struggle, um, had a kind of hit record in 1972 with their recording of Come Out Ye Black and Tans. And the Black and Tans, you know, were they were, you know, they were the you know, the state police, the kind of imperial police and and also and um in it's a song that goes back to the 1920s to the civil war and it and it's, you know, calling someone a black and tan was to accuse them of being, you know, literally or in spirit a member of the kind of British occupying force, all those elements of the Irish state, which which were collaborating with him, with them during the Civil War. So you know that you know this. I mean, this goes back to the period which is depicted in the Ken Loach film, "The Wind That Shakes the Barley." The period when essentially left wing kind of socialist and communist Republicans are fighting sort of bourgeois nationalists and just straightforward sympathisers with British. Unionism for the for the for the future of Ireland, and it's a song that evokes explicitly the similarities between the struggles of other colonised peoples around the world and the struggle of the Irish against the British Empire. Come out, shiver like a tans. Come out and fight me like a man. Show your white for you and medals down the Flanders. How the RA made you run like Galloway from the green and lovely lanes of Kilshandra. Then an interesting figure when we're thinking about music that was popular in the folk clubs, popular in Scotland and Ireland in the folk clubs that um, occupied an interesting place in the sort of you know, emerging musical universe. Interesting figure to mention is this guy Eric Bogle. He was an Australian singer or and songwriter of Scottish origin, um, who became who was wrote a few songs that became real kind of folk club standards, and then later were recorded by people like the Pogues in the nineteen eighties. So the most famous song of his, I think, is a song he would have recorded in seventy six called No Man's Land. It's also called The Green Fields of France. And it's a song evoking the horrors of the First World War as a way of make, making a critique of militarism in general. I see by 
your gravestone you were only 19 when you joined the glorious fallen in 1916 well i hope you died quick and i hope you died clean or willie mcbride was it slow Okay, now there might have been lots of other interesting stuff going on in the late to early 70s. I don't really know much about it, though, if there was. So I'm going to move on to talking about some things in the 1980s. I'm sure I'm skipping over loads of stuff that's important to lots of people. And I'm really sorry, but like I said, I've only got a limited amount of time. So this is increasingly going to become now sort of subjective as well, in terms of stuff I, I remember hearing during my lifetime. So... Really important figure to mention, um, and in some ways the last figure in a certain kind of lineage of, you know, guitar strumming, you know, political and protest singers that goes back to Woody Guthrie, is Dagenham's finest, Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg, when he released this record Between the Wars in 1984, it really seemed to be incredibly um, distinctive, you know, in, in the kind of soundscape of Thatcherite pop that dominated the charts during that year. And yeah, it's an incredible piece of music, an incredibly powerful song about, you know, and it's an incredible that in 1984, the year of the miners' strike, but also the year, a year when, you know, pop music was mostly, not entirely, but mostly kind of becoming increasingly apolitical and increasingly commercial. This, you know, was a top 20 hit record. Um, really extraordinary. It's also one of very few songs I can sing all the way through, uh, and, and will do if I'm sufficiently drunk. Billy Bragg, Between the Wars. I've always felt felt guilty for making a snide remark about Billy Bragg in the first academic journal article I ever published. Uh, I felt guilty. I had bad dreams. You know, I, I basically made the point that there was something very naive about the implied politics of work like that of Billy Bragg because I, I, I was seeing it as kind of protest music in the terms I was describing earlier. Although, you know, that wasn't really a fair critique anyway, because Billy Bragg, you know, he's not a sort of protest singer in the vein of Dylan or even the vein of like the Smiths, you know, most of the Smiths songs in the, in the 80s are sort of social protest, they're sort of vaguely complaining about certain aspects of modern existence. You know, Billy Bragg was more self-consciously in the tradition of somebody like Woody Guthrie, you know, he's calling on us to engage in struggle against our oppressors. And there's a similar energy animating uh, the next bit of music I, I want to hear. And this is from the Pogues. So we, we mentioned the Pogues. And we played them on the main show. Uh, the Pogues kind of are kind of extremely unlikely phenomenon of the mid-80s. Essentially a punk band, but using Irish traditional instrumentation and using a lot of kind of rebel song imagery and tones in their songs. Uh, were kind of surprisingly successful for a few years in the 1980s uh, and were the first band I ever went to see. And this is my favourite song of theirs from their album Rum, Sodomy and the Lass. 
is the sickbed of Cúchulainn. Cúchulainn is a hero of kind of Irish, kind of ancient, sort of epic literature. Uh, but in the, this song, Cúchulainn is recast as a an, as an kind of old time veteran of the the struggles between the wars again, actually, like the the heroes of Billy Bag song. You know, the the standout verse from this song for me is always. Um, Frank Ryan bought you whiskey in a brothel in Madrid and you decked some fucking black shirt who was cursing all the years. The implication is that this is probably someone, probably a Republican um, soldier who was down fighting in the international brigades in Spain and then, you know, getting into punch-ups with fascists in Madrid. And the song is, you know, the song is a kind of celebration of the, the kind of, the life of that kind of individual. It is really striking with both the Billy Bragg song and the Pogue song that at the, that this moment in the mid-80s, the moment of the great catastrophic defeats of the left and the Labour movement globally and very strikingly in Britain, that is powerful nostalgia for the heroism of those struggles which produced people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger in the first place. When you pissed yourself in Frankfurt and got sipped down in Cologne And you heard the rattling deck trains as you lay there all along Frank Ryan bought your whiskey in a brothel in Madrid And you take some fucking black shirt who was cursing all the yids And a sick bit of Coo Cullen will kneel and say a prayer But it goes a rattling at the door and the devil's in that chair <laughs> Uh, and at the same time, in the late 80s, there's a wave of fairly pop, quite popular kind of singer-songwriters coming out of the States, uh, people like Suzanne Vega, and most strikingly, Tracy Chapman. And Tracy Chapman is a really sort of intriguing phenomenon. So her big year is really, I think, uh, 88, 87, 88. Uh, she, she sells huge numbers of records. Um, this African-American woman singing the style of music which hasn't really uh, been associated that much with black performers. You know, she's strumming an acoustic guitar and she's singing uh, songs, some sort of personal, some political. This very sort of uh, powerful voice. And I say sort of emotionally powerful. And her most memorable song, you know, the one we should hear a bit, a bit of is, is talking about a revolution, which is just the chorus is just poor people are going to rise up and take what's theirs. I mean, this is just... You know, this is explicitly communist sort of anthem. And it's, this is, it's, it's 1988, it's America. It's the absolute high point of Reaganism. You know, George Bush is about to win the, the election. I guess one way of understanding what's going on at that moment, of course, is that in, in a certain ways, and in ways that have quite, you know, been forgotten by a lot of people now, that year, that moment in the States is, is a kind of high point for a certain kind of politics. It's a high point for the politics of the Rainbow Coalition behind Jesse Jackson's bid for the Democratic nomination. 88 is the closest he gets to getting the nomination. And so on a, in a, on a certain scale, in a certain way, actually, it's a kind of high point of convergence for politics which draws on the black radical tradition, which draws on the, the politics of the new left, which is trying to make that politics popular, is trying to bring it into the mainstream. But as much as it seems in, in some ways, you know, the music and persona and popularity of Tracy Chapman seems like a, the kind of culmination of a certain kind of history at that moment, it also feels like its end. I mean, at the time to me, you know, living in, in Thatcher's Britain in 1988 and, and seeing 
hearing sort of Tracy Chapman on the radio and seeing her on the TV, it, it all just seemed really unreal. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time in the States around then as well, and it, I just I couldn't connect with it. I guess maybe if I'd been going to places like New York or um, you know Philadelphia or some of the big cities, maybe I would have been able to kind of understand what was producing that popularity of you know politically very radical you know music in this folk idiom but um i couldn't really i still find it very sort of mysterious in some ways and i guess as i've just said it was the culmination of something for some people but that something was already over for many of us and it was going to be over for everybody pretty soon don't you know talking about a And in some ways, I think that's sort of the last moment when you can say that folk music or music in the folk idiom seems to have this spontaneous politicality. This it seems to convey a sense of radicalism and it seems to be a sort of bad sort of radical identity and I think there's a few reasons why that all changes around the end of the 80s and the turn of the 90s there's several reasons well one is just the changing political climate like this the establishment of neoliberal hegemony if you like really creates a context in which on the one hand the idea of sort of protest music just comes to seem pointless I mean to my generation I think it, you know, we wanted to go out raving. We didn't want to have songs about what was wrong with society because we knew what was wrong with society. We saw it happening every day and we were completely convinced that nobody was listening to the songs complaining about it or no one who could do anything about it was. The forces that might have been able to respond to a revolutionary call like Tracy Chapman's were in the process of being defeated and dispersed by neoliberalism, by deindustrialization, by the defeat of communism in the Soviet Union by all of these forces converging. So there was just not much point either to protest music or to revolutionary, revolutionary rallying calls. And without either for being able to fulfill either of those functions, the kind of radical vocation of folk music ends up being very difficult to fulfill. I think there's something else going on as well that's quite difficult to put our finger on exactly to do with the sort of changing uh, racial and ethnic dynamics of music and music culture. So Tracy Chapman's a really striking figure, partly because she's one of very few sort of black figures in that singer-songwriter tradition, that kind of folk idiom tradition. And I realised I didn't quite uh, get to the point of my analysis earlier of how it was that people doing this seemingly very white music were also the people who were very, very committed to anti-racist struggles, say, in the early 60s. And speculatively, I'd suggest that part of what was going on at that moment was that the, exactly the, these people who were very committed to anti-racist struggle probably had a kind of sensitivity to the fact that what was going on in the wider culture was, you know, a, a great act of, sort of cultural appropriation. What was going on was the, the Rolling Stones were becoming massive stars and were about to become millionaires on the back of ripping off the sound of Muddy Waters, who was never going to become a millionaire. 
and I think there was a kind of instinctive revulsion and instinctive turning away from those processes, which led people who were themselves very anti-racist to occupy a kind of musical cultural niche in which they were drawing on their own musical traditions or those of their own communities, rather than just drawing directly on the, the widely the sort of available resource of African-American culture. As by the end of the 80s, the general kind of cultural ecology that everybody's living in, the growth of multiculturalism, the growing sense of the hybridity of contemporary culture, means that that kind of a, a response, that kind of a, of, a, of a response to the racial dynamics of music and music culture doesn't make as much sense. And I guess the sort of, you know, the popularity of Tracy Chapman in a way, you know, marks a moment where all of those dynamics are changing, where people are kind of moving back and forth between different musical idioms much more freely. Of course, they always had to an extent, you know, there had always been great white jazz musicians. Rock and roll was itself a hybrid form of you know, honky-tonk country and um, rhythm and blues. But, but the processes of hybridisation, the sense that the new and innovative kinds of music that were emerging, especially by the early 90s, were all ones which were drawing on a wide range of different traditions. You know, it was techno, which was drawing on you know, the synthetic whiteness of Kraftwerk and the funk of George Clinton. It was drum and bass jungle in Britain, really the first very self-consciously formally hybrid music. I mean, people on the jungle scene were very, very proud of the idea that it, was, it wasn't black music, it wasn't white music, it was self-consciously mixing things up. Of course, the two-tone movement about 10 years earlier had tried to do something similar in a very contrived and self-conscious way, but this was something much more organic. And at the same time, there's, a, there's another element to think about with regard to the sort of changing ethnic dynamics of culture and with regard to some of the issues that we've talked about. I've referred several times to the way in which Irish music and Irish politics and Irish struggle to some extent are always nearby and informing the folk music tradition. Now, it's important to understand that up until the early 90s, in Britain in particular, Irishness is a kind of marginalised identity. Irish racism is deeply ingrained in mainstream culture, in political culture, in police culture. You know, there's that line from the novel and film, The Commitments, uh, the Irish are the blacks of Europe. I mean, that's really what it was like. And, you know, I remember, you know, Irish friends would be subject to police harassment in the same way that black people were when I was first in London at the beginning of the 90s. All of this changes really dramatically in the first half of the 90s for a bunch of reasons. The Celtic tiger phenomenon, the growth of the Irish economy with its adoption of a kind of high-tech neoliberal model means that Irish people are, have got money, they've got jobs. Ireland, in fact, is becoming a place people might even be moving to for work rather than a, a place people are moving away from, as had been the habitual situation for generations and generations. At the same time, and this is a bit more speculative. This isn't something I can really prove is right or wrong. I think Irishness starts to take on a, 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 a symbolic place in the British cultural imaginary in the first half of the 1990s, which is very different from almost the reverse of what it had occupied previously. In an increasingly visibly multicultural Britain in the first half of the 90s, 
Irishness becomes the kind of final repository of authentic pure whiteness. You look at the imagery of the marketing campaigns for Irish chain pubs, for kind of Celtic, sort of Celtic music and things like this in the first half of the 90s. The imagery is all these very, very white people with red hair, you know, completely no, no danger there's any element of black or Asian identity to them. And, you know, Ireland becomes in the British imaginary the westernmost outpost of Europe, like the whitest place in the world. I think, you know, it's really striking a phenomenon and, you know, it's almost forgotten about now in some ways. But there's a huge boom in the first half of the 90s and and even a bit later in Britain in these Irish-themed chain pubs. Now, Irish pubs had always been a phenomenon in Britain, but Irish pubs up until the 1990s were places where Irish people and their families congregated. There were people you would go and you would hear Irish rebel songs being sung. There would be collections for the IRA. You know, they were not kind of respectable places that neither English people went to and then the Irish pub gets marketed as like the key sort of high street retail leisure concept of the first half of the 90s you've got to ask well what is it what is it people want from this kind of imaginary vision of Irishness well it's certainly I think well it certainly isn't a kind of uh, experience of actual multicultural urban Britain it's a kind of escape from it and so I think for younger people, especially people younger than me, people who would have been too young to sort of go out to the po- hear the pogues in the second half of the 80s, I imagine, I haven't asked anyone, but I imagine, you know, you're growing up in the 90s, Irish music, if it means anything to you, it's this incredibly saccharine kind of version of Irish music that you would hear on adverts and that you might hear being played in these incredibly kind of plastic theme pubs. So... A whole kind of musical tradition which to some extent has relied upon Irish influence and Irish sources and the kind of you know history of Irish radicalism to give it a sense of radicalism you know the folk tradition the British folk tradition just can't really uh, draw on that in the same way anymore it can't have the same valency so this isn't to say that from like 1990 onwards there aren't radical folk musicians there isn't great folk music being produced. Of course there is. There's all kinds of you know, great music, great singers and great work. But I think it's what it's sort of significance changes. It doesn't, it no longer seems to be kind of spontaneously recognisable as a kind of authentically radical musical form. And one of the key responses to that, I think, is that is that musicians working one way or another in a folk idiom who want to do something which is sort of formally radical increasingly what they have to do is to accentuate the, the weird elements of folk, the imaginary elements or the psychedelic elements that people like the Incredible String Band had accentuated in their work in the late 60s. And in fact, it's arguably the Incredible String Band, Vashti Bunyan, John Farhey, people like that. And to some extent, the kind of weirder elements of people like Steely Span that end up being the resource which... Uh, radical musicians working in the folk musician are drawing on by the end of the 90s. So at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, there's the emergence of terms like free folk or freak folk. David Keenan, a Scottish music journalist, writes a famous article in The Wire talking about the new weird America. And one of the things he's talking about is the emergence of a so-called free folk scene in the States. 
Now, a lot of the music that we're talking about here, I mean, it's only folk to the extent that it sort of uses some acoustic instruments and some traditional American instruments. Mostly it's better understood as kind of drone drone-based psychedelic rock and sort of psychedelic post-rock, most of it. So I don't think we're going to play much of it here. It's only very tangentially conceivable as folk music. Thinking about people like Animal Collective and Sunburned Hand of the Man, who were cited as kind of key examples at one time. I I do think I want us to listen to some bits of music from the past sort of 20 years, though, that are sort of coming out of that tradition, coming out of that moment, which are maybe more recognisably um, drawing on and playing with the sorts of folk idioms, but are also, at least in two cases, at least tangentially or directly connected to that free folk, weird folk movement. So one uh, interesting song to listen to would be Joanna Newsom's song from her first album, uh, the song is called The Sprout and the Bean. And Newsom's is a harpist. She's very much in the tradition of somebody like Vashti Bunyan, although actually in, ter- in terms of the um, sort of sophistication of the lyrics and some of the arrangements and imagery, you know, she's also obviously influenced as more by people like Joni Mitchell, I think. Um, but it definitely has this kind of child, deliberately childlike quality of somebody like Vashti Bunyan. So that's from 2004, The Sprout and the Bean. Let the difference between the sprout and the bean It is a golden ring It is a twisted string then another track worth listening to, much more conventional, not at all weird folk, just a kind of modern folk, and, and really just evidence that people are still doing it. Um, the British singer Bella Hardy, I think in 2011 she recorded this track. It's a track called The Herring Girl, and it is really a deliberate and explicit callback to the, the tradition of work songs and songs that celebrate working class life and, and work. And of course, herring, you know, is in, inescapably an, an allusion to you and McCall and the shoals of herring. But it's still, you know, it's a, it's a moving and powerful piece of work. It's from 2011. All you who look down on me With that judgment in your eyes While the jury picks its fate for me I'd have you save your size As a child with no family I was begging on the street when great fortune came and made me a herring girl. And then finally, a really recent track. I think this is from 2020. Heather Lee, who is an artist, um, I think she began life mainly as a slide guitarist. And she, she began her career on the kind of free folk circuit. The stuff she's doing now is, again, you know, would be as, as much, would be as much describable as kind of ambient music as any kind of folk. But you can still hear in the kind of sonorities and the textures and the voice the, the extent to which she's to some extent drawing on this folk idiom, but again, in a very psychedelic sort of way.
I guess we can't finish this episode about folk music without making some reference to the um, uh, the existence of the kind of heinous phenomenon which is Mumford and Sons and various kind of derivative copying artists. I guess Mumford and Sons are really symptomatic of the phenomenon, the wider phenomenon of the gentrification of festival culture. Uh, to some extent, the gentrification of folk, the gentrification of a whole number of things that were once considered to be in some way radical. And maybe this is kind of evidence for another one of the reasons why folk sort of stops being an intrinsically radical form around the early 90s. Because, of course, it's around the early 90s. It's with the election of Bill Clinton as president that the same generation of people whose political vanguard you know, marched for civil rights against the Vietnam War, they listened to Phil Oakes and Joan Baez, they hung out in coffee shops and strummed acoustic guitars. The professional classes of the baby boomer generation with Bill Clinton become the key figures of the emerging neoliberal technocratic political class. So, of course, their music is not going to retain the same sense of avant-garde radicality that it might have had decades previously. And that in some ways, the logical conclusion of that process is just festival culture, folk culture, becoming domesticated, sanitised, depoliticised to the point where Mumford and Sons become a plausible possibility. I mean, it really would have just seemed incredible to me, like when I was a kid in the mid 80s, that, you know, you would have a band, you know, playing those, those kind of instruments um, that could be so apolitical. In fact, you know, based on the pronouncements of some of their members recently, pretty right wing. But there we go. This isn't something which is specific or intrinsic to folk music. This is something which is just typical of advanced capitalist culture. Almost everything can get appropriated and neutralised. You can think about a figure like Bob Marley and how incredibly kind of mainstream and domesticated he's, he's become in many contexts. So I would say, you know, what remains of folk music now, what remains of folk music's radicalism in kind of contemporary music, I think is probably best exemplified by that Heather Lee track. It's kind of weirdness, it's psychedelic potential. It still, you know, remind, is really a kind of fascinating contemporary manifestation of that weird enchantment which artists from really from the sort of Watersons onwards have been playing with. But at the same time, I think that earlier iteration of folk, that classic 1940s iteration of folk, you know, it still retains an incredible power to inspire us, to remind us of the importance of the legacies of struggle, which those guys were engaged in and which they sung about. And I think artists like Billy Bragg, you know, who today mainly make it their job to sing those kind of songs and to help us remember that history are still playing a very important role. I think folk music you know, and the folk music tradition, I think for that reason, um, if for no other, it remains an incredibly powerful resource for us to draw on, a resource for inspiration, uh, a resource for self-education. I think it's one that's going to retain that radical power and that capacity to inspire us for a long time to come. And that's the end. Um, that's re if you like that, you might want to check out uh, the new podcast I'm doing with Tim Lawrence, uh, also produced by Matt Huxley, which is about the sort of history of music, dance, counterculture. In fact, in an episode we recorded recently, we talked quite a bit about that early 60s New York coffee house scene. 
So uh, check that out. Hi guys, this is Matt. Jem forgot to say the name of the show. It's called Love is the Message. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, thanks everyone. Thanks to Matt for editing this episode, which will have been quite a lot of work. And I'll see you next time.